Welcome to Excavate, uncovering our place in God's story. I'm Jamie Dawn. And I'm Heather Strong Moore. Today, we are in part two of our two-part series on the Trinity. Last week, we discussed the nature of and relationship between Jesus and God. And today, we're digging deeper into the nature of the Holy Spirit. This is the most mysterious and neglected part of the Trinity, and one that holds a lot of questions about femininity within the triune God. We're hoping to offer ideas, food for thought, and ultimately an exhortation for all believers to understand and seek the life of the Spirit. Let's dig in. So in the same way that last week, we had some just hesitations, concerns, trepidations about speaking on the nature of God, which is something that we take very seriously and want to be very cautious about representing God fully and accurately and well and not overstepping or overspeaking. Or we we're just very mindful that we want people to know the Lord for who God is. And we want that in our own lives. And we want to be cautious to also be guiding and exhorting people in healthy and truthful ways. And so we continue to feel some trepidation <laughs> here today. And again, I think a healthy trepidation that it is just delicate of speaking about the nature of God and the ways that different Christians throughout history have interacted with the Trinity and specifically the Holy Spirit. So we want to be really thoughtful that we have some pretty thorough research and observations of our own. And also, we don't want to just speak in huge blanket sweeping terms. And we want to hold things somewhat loosely in honor of the mysterious nature of God. And so today, we want to hopefully strike that balance of sharing clearly some things that we have thought about for a long time and have studied and again observed and also knowing there's going to be things that we still don't know and don't fully understand. And so we want to come into this with curiosity and also humility. Yeah, I think that's a great way of putting it, Heather. And I think also the aspect of God's incomprehensibility being really good news to us can't be overstated. The fact that people spend their lives writing books on the Trinity and yet it's still something that we don't have always clear language or clear explanations of says a lot. And I think we can see that as something that's scary or confusing, but it really is good news that we have a God who is beyond our full comprehension. And that is actually something that is very exciting and liberating. Yeah, I love that. I I think that that's always an energizing aspect of Christianity for me is that you never plateau. You never arrive at, well, now I know all that there is to know. There's just <laughs> always more depths to plumb. There's always new things to uncover. And so, yeah, that actually is a really lovely and intentional aspect of who God is. So we were excited to dig into that. And also, again, very aware that there are things that we don't know and that no one knows. And together as believers, we are pursuing the things of God with open hearts and seeking the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And we believe that God will meet us in that. Yeah, that's really good. I think it also can't be overstated how much what you said in the introduction about 
the Holy Spirit being the most neglected aspect of the Trinity and just how often when we think about a triune God, we actually do leave a person of the Trinity out of the conversation so often. And I think that's so important as we dig into this conversation to come to it with open hands, because for a lot of people, this isn't a conversation that we dive into very often. And so for that reason alone, I think it's so important for us to dig in today and for people to come really with open hands. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So in last week's episode where we started with God and Jesus, and we purposefully wanted to give the Holy Spirit its own episode <laughs> to your point, Jamie, we were like, it's, we need more time for that. Um, but I had mentioned the book, The Dance of the Dissident Daughter by Stu Monk Kidd. And so I, I haven't revisited that book in over a decade. And so I did go back and read it a little bit over the weekend. And it was a little bit funny to me how, frankly, heretical (laughs) some of her (laughs) conclusions were that at the time I maybe I just didn't realize how heretical they were. Um, And so I'm going to I'll share a little bit about the ways that she went and what that says about where we don't want to go today. Um, But it was actually in a funny way, really encouraging and sort of comforting for me because it reminded me how much God is able to protect us when we are on a real journey of seeking the truth about the nature of God and the nature of our place in the world that sometimes in that journey we encounter things that are wrong and even sometimes the the things that are wrong can still spark something that could point us in a healthier direction but it actually just made me very thankful to the Lord that God has protected me from pretty like going off the rails, essentially from some pretty unbiblical theology. And it actually kind of chilled me out a little bit of how much I worry about young people just falling down rabbit holes, even online and whatnot. And of course that does happen. And that's something that we need to be really aware of as we're discipling up the next generation. But it also just did remind me of like, God is bigger than errors and false teaching and that the truth of God really is the most powerful thing in the universe that can bring us back and guide us through it. And so it made me just want to like glorify God for that, for the ways that God can transcend falsity and lead us into real truth and beauty. Yeah. When you mentioned that over the weekend to me personally, that you were like, oh yeah, it is a little different than I remember. I That was my same response, the goodness of God to just use whatever it takes in some ways to uh, grow our curiosity and to move us towards God's self. And so I think that in and of itself is a really beautiful picture of the way that the Lord and the Holy Spirit in particular really works. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so good. So yeah, so in her book, she draws on the Gnostic writings and we've mentioned that a little bit in a few of our other episodes. Now I'm now it's escaping my mind, which ones we did talk about it on, but the Gnostics were ultimately a rejected school of, of theological thought, not long after the life of Christ. So within the first few hundred years of the early church, And so there were a lot of things that they were marked by. They had this sense of hidden revelation that they alone had 
the secret understanding about who Jesus was and that that wasn't open to other people. And so there was kind of a sense of secrecy and exclusion around their, the way that they understood and interpreted scripture and the person of Jesus. And then I actually didn't know this, but apparently they had some pretty wild thoughts about <laughs> femininity in the Trinity. And now it's coming back to me that I think in when we, in our Mary Magdalene episode, that was where maybe the Gnostics had some also random and uh, fan fiction based <laughs> ideas of Mary Magdalene being married to Jesus and stuff like that. And so it does seem like they had some pretty bizarre and unfounded beliefs about essentially like goddess worship in this functionally what it was that they believed that perhaps the Holy Spirit was fully a feminine being that it also seemed like they felt like was even distinct from the Trinity. So like, it's just kind of muddy. It's a little bit all over the place. And for the, this author, Sue Monk kid, she thought that was really cool and really compelling. And I'm reading that and I'm like, ah! <laughs> not the road we want to go down. So this is a little, this is very much some kind of inside baseball, uh, theological talk of even worrying about Gnostics and, are people going to listen to this episode and think that we're getting into Gnosticism, which I think most of you probably don't care about, but we just wanted to be clear. That's not what we're doing in case that is interesting to you. And you thought about that, that we are not going to go as far as many other people have. We're not verging into goddess worship. We just want to actually name and affirm that women came from somewhere. <laughs> and if men and women are made in the image of God, that means women reflect part of who God is. And often, in my experience, the Trinity has only been portrayed as completely masculine. And that's an error. I mean, that's just, that's a, a partial version of who God is. Because, therefore, where did women come from? <laughs> like, it just, it doesn't logically make sense. Um, and so, I, we just wanted to be clear at the front end, we're not verging into goddess worship, and yet, we want to add a little bit or rather uncover what was already there, that there is femininity within the triune Godhead that we believe has really been covered up. And like you said, neglected. Yeah, that's really good. And I think again, what's kind of fascinating to me is that Gnostics also didn't have the greatest view of women uh, and the body. So it's just very interesting to me how they got there. It was like a very skewed version almost of like understanding there must be something valuable here, but we can't figure out what. So we'll just put it into the Lord or something. I don't know. But very interesting to me the way that that kind of skewed. But again, so often we have said these really clear statements that we believe that God is outside of gender and then get very worked up about anything other than like male pronouns being used or, um, you know, just any sort of aspect of recognizing that there are feminine attributes to the Lord and that there would be reflections of God's self within women because God says he made women in the image of himself. And so I think it's so interesting to see how much we have always said that God is outside of gender, 
and does not have a gendered self outside of Jesus incarnate in a male body, but um, yet have really gotten worked up about the other aspects of that. Exactly. Yeah, it's it doesn't it it's a double standard. Um, and so our goal for today is that we do believe there are pretty significant expressions of femininity within the Trinity in general. And I would say most strongly expressed in the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And so we are going to draw that out today. We are going to dig into how does scripture discuss and at times gender the Holy Spirit and how does the spirit work? How does scripture again describe the movement and work of the spirit? And then also that there are things that we can learn and observe based on how the church historically has reacted to the Holy Spirit, both in positive ways and in quite negative and unhelpful ways, that all of that reflects and shows us what the Spirit is and what it has to, to show us about where women belong in, in the image of God. And so that is our goal for us today. We are going to talk some about feminine expression within the Trinity. And also, if y'all haven't realized this by now, Jamie and I are both very passionate about the work of the Holy Spirit and being attuned to the life of the Spirit. And so we also just want to spark additional curiosity and desire to experience more of the presence of God and more of the work of God. And because the Spirit has been so neglected, I think a lot of Christians don't really know how to do that or where to start unless you've grown up in very specific, more charismatic traditions. Most of the rest of the Western church does not have a very strong priority on or focus on the life of the spirit. And so we do hope also that this episode will encourage greater exploration as a result. Yeah, I'm glad you said that because I was going to say from the start, we are unapologetically not cessationists. And that is um, going to become clearer and clearer if it wasn't already. So um, yeah. And I think there's actually a lot that can be said about a curiosity for me of where cessationists have had a greater way of speaking into a theology of the Holy Spirit that is just interesting to me. Yeah. Cessationists believe that uh, the work of the Holy Spirit ceased um, after the first wave of Pentecost, basically. So if that's a term that's unfamiliar to you, that would be the general expression of it, that the gifts of the Holy Spirit ceased at that time period and that the work of the Holy Spirit now in our current dispensation is um, very limited. So, yeah. Yeah, I'm glad you defined that. I literally was just about to define that, but we were mm -hmm. on the same page there. And we mentioned this in our, in season one, when we were talking about women in the church. Um, but a lot of cessationists would say that, for example, the gift of prophecy is now preaching. So some of it is, they would say like the gifts aren't given or manifested in the same way, but they're still like loosely present ish. But as we talked about in that episode, Paul talks about women prophesying in church. 
And so if you think that the gifts are no longer active and that prophesying is now preaching, then you have to say that women are therefore encouraged to preach in church. <laughs> so there's just, there's a lot of layers to that theology and philosophy. Yes. Agreed. I think it's, I'm going to try really hard not to overly comment right now about it though. <laughs> Fair. Okay. So we do want to start with talking about how the word for the spirit is gendered between the old Testament and the new Testament, because I think this is something that unless you're a more active Bible scholar, you likely haven't been exposed to this understanding or this information. And so maybe y'all have heard the Hebrew word for breath or spirit or wind. It's, it's used interchangeably. The Hebrew word is ruach for the breath of God, the spirit of God. So we see it first in Genesis 1, that the spirit of God hovers over the waters and is the creative life force of God that then calls forth the creation itself. And so ruach in the Hebrew is feminine. And we just think that's really important to start with that. I, I think that's rarely taught or rarely shared with sort of a general Christian audience that in the Hebrew, the word for the spirit of God, the breath of God, the wind and power of God is feminine. Yeah, I think that's so important because it's not really translated like that in our English versions of scripture. So in the same way, I mean, I think we've talked about this in other episodes, but in the same way that a lot of other languages that are not English have um, feminine and masculine two different words, that would be one where, yeah, it's a feminine word, but we don't translate it that way in our the Bibles that we often hold in church and in our world. And so um, I think that's such an interesting choice for us to not have any way to express that in a footnote or anything really in most of our English translations. Right, exactly. And so that's where we wanted to start there. And when you think about that, the spirit of God, the breath of God is feminine, that makes so much sense for Eve and for women, that then women are created to be the creators of life, <laughs> those that call forth life and bring forth life into the earth. And so for the spirit of God to be the expression that is calling forth the creation is a really lovely parallel to then the way that the spirit calls forth women to do the same. That's just, that's so beautiful. And it just also is this really logical <laughs> picture of like, we come from somewhere. Um, we reflect something very real about the nature of God and that especially in the creation account, that that would be a somewhat deliberate parallel that we see a feminine energy of God, a feminine power of God bringing forth life. And then that involves bringing forth women who will continue to do that for all of humanity. Yeah, I think I want to talk more about this in a little bit, but it's important to name because so often we've not talked about the Holy Spirit as Trinity past forever. And 
eternity future at the same time. And so because of that, I think it's really important to point that out that the Holy Spirit is present in creation, that the Holy Spirit is a part of the Trinity and therefore active in creation and in the world in eternity past and eternity future. And so I think that's just really important because we do have a really limited way of speaking about that. So as we continue in this conversation, we'll see ways in which the Holy Spirit has been present for all of eternity. And I just think it's really important to point that aspect out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then so throughout the Old Testament, we see this same word, this word of ruach, of breath or wind, of strong wind, or again, spirit, that that's the word that's used in Genesis 8 to blow, it blows, the spirit hovers and blows over the flood, over the waters that cover the earth and blows back the water to reveal life again, to reveal the earth and a renewed creation. And then that's the same word that's used that the spirit of God parts the Red Sea, that this wind, this power of God blows and parts the waters in order to allow God's people to move through the Exodus, to move into liberation. And in the book of Ezekiel, there's such a fun kind of more quirky passage in some ways about the Valley of Dry Bones. Uh, I believe it's Ezekiel 37. And that then the spirit of God, the breath of God fills the dry bones and brings them back to life, that it covers them with, with flesh and brings them back into the world, into the creation. So there's really, again, just beautiful and such powerful picture and working of and presence of the spirit and breath of God throughout the Old Testament. And I do think it's really important for us to note that it's not only in giving birth that the spirit works. It's in moving with power on behalf of God's people. It's moving in power on behalf of of life, essentially. And so I do think that it's really important to note that it's multi-dimensional. Carmen Imes talks a lot about, I don't think she talked about it as much in our episode with her on the Exodus, but she talks about it in her books about the words for that are used for Eve, that Eve is a helper in a way that is actually a word that indicates military might and military aid and power. And so I think that's also really important to note that we see the spirit moving in that way as well, in ways that then women also mirror that it's not only in pregnancy and birth, but is actually in being agents of power and help and transformation in the world itself. Yeah, I think it's so helpful that you pointed that out because there can be such a temptation to have our like feminine essentialism come down to that aspect of things. And it's so much fuller than that. It's not limited simply to a, a birthing dimension, but rather a much fuller expression. Yeah. And one more in, in the, again, in the Genesis account, we see the Hebrew it for the spirit of God is Ruach Elohim. And it actually is masculine and feminine together. And I just think that is, again, a powerful picture of the partnership that we are meant to see within the Trinity and the partnership that we are meant to see in the creation and within humanity, that we are called forth in partnership, that the masculine and feminine in the nature of God are calling forth the creation 
And then we mirror that in the way that Adam and Eve and men and women are raised up together to partner as stewards, as the, the representatives of God in the earth. Yeah, that's good. And I think it points to, to the lack of hierarchy in the Trinity, that there's this full partnership in the Trinity that is, or I I don't know what the full word for a, a trio is. As I'm saying that, I'm like partner. Um, but I think this this beautiful expression of all three persons of the Trinity working together in creation and in uh, partnership, really, to bring that about. And I think that lack of hierarchy, because there's so often been this kind of implicit way of talking about the Trinity that includes these subtle hierarchical understandings to point that out that there's there's no indication of that actually in the text yeah yeah that's so good so to be clear though the hebrew doesn't outright call the spirit she so we you know again we're not trying to overstate we're not trying to go further than the scripture allows so we're not going so far as to say the holy spirit is a woman and the hebrew calls the holy spirit a woman that's not fully accurate again it's a feminine tense if you will but that doesn't necessarily mean it's a feminine pronoun um but the spirit or the hebrew also never refers to the spirit as he so that's yet again important that it's feminine on the neutral side rather than it's sometimes called he as well um and so i can already anticipate people thinking about the new testament And there are times where Jesus is translated as referring to the spirit as he. And in the Greek, the word that's used for spirit is pneuma. Um, And it's almost like the, it's the, the origin of the term pneumonia, because it's about, it's about breath. It's about like our, the breath in our lungs. So pneuma is the Greek word for spirit. And that tense is neutral. It's neither masculine nor feminine. So I think just because English doesn't really have as much of a capacity for neutral gendering, (laughs) um, I think that's more a function of the English language rather than necessarily biblical intent, that there are times for sure, especially specifically in the New Testament where it's translated as he, but the word itself is gender neutral. Yeah, that's so good. And I think really more than anything points to the reality that the Lord is outside of gender. He, the Lord is not a gendered being, um, again, outside of the incarnation for 33 years. But I think that's a really important aspect that we, we get captured in the Holy spirit so clearly. Exactly. And so then one thing that Jesus does do, again, while it's translated in English as Jesus sometimes calling the spirit, he more specifically, Jesus refers to the spirit with specific terminology, calling the Holy Spirit, the comforter, the advocate and the helper. We see that in John 14, 26. This is kind of ironic that the ESV actually translates the term helper. The NIV translates it as advocate, which is also a great term uh, but that the ESV would call it helper 
which where have we seen that before in Genesis that Eve is called the helper. And so there is, I think, an intentional parallel that the spirit that Jesus says, I will send the helper in the same way that God looked at the earth and said, you need something else. You need an additional force of power and might and love and nurture. And I will send that to you. That Jesus then says that again about the Holy Spirit will be released through the earth amongst all believers because you're lacking something and God has the solution for that. Yeah, I found that so intriguing about the ESV because as we've said in other places, they are generally quite conservative about their views of women and in some ways unapologetically so. And so the fact that they would so clearly use that word is certainly intriguing. I think another aspect that we want to talk about with the Holy Spirit is that so often we talk about the Holy Spirit as if this person of the Trinity, which even that language person can be, I think, a little bit confusing, but that's pretty pretty early on in the way that we understood the Trinity is just a way of talking about the three aspects and the three persons of the Trinity. But we often talk about the Holy Spirit as if it's like a vapor that we can somehow maybe capture for a moment or something. Um, again, because there's a bit mysterious in the language of breath and wind. And so there's aspects of it that that get to that. And yet, I think that's a way of really relegating the Holy Spirit because you can't define a vapor very well, but you can you actually have to interact with a person. And so part of our dissociation comes from that because we can't understand this vapor aspect rather than saying the Holy Spirit is a, a person of the Trinity that we interact with and that we can pray to. And I think even that aspect, I started to notice more and more probably when I was in college that no one ever prays and invites Holy Spirit into prayer. And I find that to be so intriguing. It's pretty, uh, it almost made me feel like heretical to do it for a little while until I was like, no, it's actually quite legal. It's very um, theologically sound. We just actually don't interact with the person of the Holy Spirit because it's so easy for us to kind of relegate this as an idea or an abstraction really rather than a full being of the Trinity. Yeah, that's completely true. And that reminds me of a funny story that I heard in the Anglican church that there was a bishop in the global South. I think it was from a Latin American country and he was praying to the Holy Spirit and someone was getting real nervous and getting on his case about that. Like, I don't know if that's biblical. I don't know what if you should be doing that. And his reply was, do you think God is going to be saying, oh, no, you're praying to the wrong part of me? <laughs> and I thought that was a fun, like a pretty indicting answer of like, what do we think that if we're praying to the Holy Spirit, you know, inviting the spirit to work, inviting the spirit to join with us in something that God's going to be like, oh, that's the wrong part of me. We're fundamentally saying that the Trinity that, or that the Holy Spirit, therefore, is not a real member of the Trinity. 
if we think mm -hmm. that we can't pray to the Holy Spirit. That's real. Like, I really think that we need to check ourselves on that. If we obviously think it's fine to pray to Jesus and pray to God the Father, and if we don't think that it's okay to pray to the Holy Spirit, then we are actually saying we don't think the Spirit is a member of the Trinity. Yeah, I think that's such an important way to name that. Because often, really, we hear, even if you do hear someone pray to the Holy Spirit, it's really basically like an invocation and an invitation, like, Holy Spirit, come or um, be present with us. And I think that's a great prayer for sure but it's very limited in one's interaction with the person of the Holy Spirit. And so I think even if you take nothing else from this episode, but an invitation into prayer and conversation and dialogue with the person of the Holy Spirit, I think that would be a beautiful, I would be so excited if that's what people took away from this episode. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So continuing in that of, how do we understand the spirit? What does the spirit do? Because like we've been saying, a lot of us don't know. We, we just don't really get a lot of teaching about it. We don't necessarily have a lot of discussion on it. Maybe sometimes in small groups, maybe, but rarely, I think, from the pulpit. Uh, and so we just have gathered some different, just clear examples of how does the Holy Spirit move? How do we even recognize what the spirit is? where the spirit is moving, what the function is of the Holy Spirit in the Trinity. So we have a little list to share for y'all to then be more aware and be thinking about that. So as we've said, it is often described as wind and wind that is mighty and powerful. Again, that it is breath that is a life-giving breath that calls forth life and also a powerful wind that can make a path forward for God's people that can defeat the enemies of God's people, it is something that is powerful and good. And um, Romans 8, I think, has this, a really power, a really beautiful depiction of the true power of the Holy Spirit that, again, it is like to, to move on our behalf. Um, but Romans 10, 11 says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. I think that verse is really powerful that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is the Holy Spirit that lives in us. That's tremendous power. The, that, that's the power to defeat death. And so we see these pictures of the Holy Spirit as having incredible life-giving power. And then we also see pictures of the Holy Spirit as moving and speaking in a low whisper, in a still small voice. We see that in first Kings with the prophet Elijah on Mount Horeb when he's having his encounter with God. We talked about that in our mental health episode that all these big dazzling things happen. And it says, but, but God wasn't in the fire. He wasn't in the thunder. God was in the low whisper. And so I also very much in my personal life experience the movement of the spirit in that low whisper, in the nudge, in a, a small voice in the back of my mind that says, you should do this. You should go talk to that person. You should pray for this person, whatever it might be. But that's often how the spirit moves. And it can be easy to ignore. And we often do. And yet, if we're actually mindful and listening, we can receive really powerful guidance and insight from 
the low whisper of the spirit. Yeah, I think that's such a good reminder. I think if you are someone who has been around more spirit-filled environments, then you may have only experienced really loud expressions of the Holy Spirit. And if you are someone who has not experienced that, you may look upon those expressions with contempt. And so to see that in scripture, we have really clear examples of a a big expression from Holy Spirit and also a really quiet whisper to be attentive to and that both are ways in which Holy Spirit is made manifest. And so both are worth paying attention to. Exactly. And that within that, another attribute is that the spirit brings revelation and insight, that the spirit is the communication and insight of God. Most people would say that the Holy Spirit inspires, has inspired the writing of scripture. So like, I do think most Christians would agree on that no matter what their, their background would be. And so we see that, that God moves through the spirit to reveal God's will, to reveal God's nature to reveal the history of God's people and the truth of God to God's people by the Holy Spirit's inspiration and guidance. And we see the prophets ranging from the Old Testament prophets to the very last book of the New Testament with the book of Revelation with John, that the Holy Spirit is sometimes picking them up and moving them places (laughs) Um, and is giving them visions, is giving them understanding is even explaining visions that they're seeing of, Hey, you're seeing this, this is what it means. And so the spirit is very much driving a communication from God, a direct line to God, because God wants us to know, to know him. God wants to be known by the people of faith. And so the Holy spirit is such a, a, a connector and a conduit for us to know God. And I would say that that's still true, not that we receive new inspired scripture, but that the Holy Spirit is still a huge way in which we understand God's word, that the spirit illuminates our minds. And I'm, I always pray before I read the Bible for my devotions or for preparation for a Bible study or a talk that I'm giving. I'm always asking the Holy Spirit to guide me because the spirit knows the word like nothing else. <laughs> and so the spirit is then the, a real mode of God revealing truth and understanding to us. Yeah. When Jesus is telling his disciples that they should be really excited that he's leaving because the Holy spirit will come, which I would say most people in the Western church should like spend a year meditating on that first, but um, cause we don't actually get that excited about that. But Jesus tells his disciples that the Holy Spirit will lead us into all truth. And so that's an aspect of the Holy Spirit that's so important when we are reading scripture, that Holy Spirit will lead us into the truth of who God himself really is. And so I think that aspect of things is so important. And I would say like, if if you heard us talk about like cessationists and you're like, well, that doesn't even sound like a Christian. Um, then this would be one aspect where the work of the Holy spirit is still believed to be active for a cessationist that the work of the Holy spirit still illuminates 
scripture to the believer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Right. And part of that for me, again, like how does that actually play out in practical ways? Again, I'll pray and invite the spirit's guidance. And then I listen, I'll kind of try to seek some stillness. And especially as I'm preparing for some kind of biblical teaching, I try to be very collaborative with the spirit and really listen to what keeps rising to the surface of my mind. What are things that I like have just an intuitive hesitation about the in maybe more charismatic circles, we would call it a check in my spirit <laughs> that it's like, mm, that doesn't feel right. I, I feel an intuitive hesitation of like, ah, uh, maybe that, that interpretation or maybe that application that doesn't really feel quite true. And so I'm going to move away from, from that element of my teaching and lean heavier in another direction that I do just have a clearer sense of this is what the people of God need at this time. And so I do think such an important element of actually receiving the benefit of the spirit, the help and guidance of the spirit has to involve listening and involve some stillness. And that's something that you can practice and really hone that you can actually get pretty good. I think at fairly quickly, sometimes, sometimes it's the process is waiting and like waiting on that revelation, waiting on that insight. And that can take at times, like when I've prepared pretty important, like high stakes talks, it would take me a few months that I've been working on it and listening to the spirit throughout that time. But sometimes it's pretty quick and is like, oh, this is what the people of God need to hear right now. And sometimes it's like, oh yeah, no, that's wrong. <laughs> I'm going to step away from that. Um, and so it is just, it's a habit and a practice that we can cultivate that can yield really rich fruit for us and that it's to benefit the people of God. God always wants that. God always wants the the community of faith to know truth and understanding and to be ministered to. And so it's it's a, a ministry of the spirit that is for us personally and is also meant to benefit the wider body. Yeah, that's really good, Heather. And I think, again, comes down to cultivating relationship with the person of the Holy Spirit because you learn what the Holy Spirit's voice sounds like to you. And so you can begin to develop that intimate friendship with the Holy Spirit in order to continue to walk and step with the Spirit as Paul instructs us to. Yeah. And then connected to like related to that, the Holy Spirit part, a role of the Holy Spirit is to be the connective tissue. It's the glue that holds the body together. And a helpful way that I have found to think about that is that the Holy Spirit lives in every believer. All of us, because of the sacrifice of Christ, because of the crucifixion that we've made been made righteous before God, all of us now have the spirit of God dwelling within us, which means there's the capacity for agreement for understanding for empathy for insight that can exist supernaturally between believers that we have a direct line to one another because the same spirit lives within all of us and so the spirit is a unifying force that is meant to bring us into community with one another bring us into understanding and agreement and unity with one another and to help us have supernatural insight into what others need and are going through 
And that's where, again, like preparing a talk, for example, I can't know exactly what every person in that audience is feeling, but the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit is within them, is in a very intimate way connected with them, knows their stories, knows their current moment, and can give me as a speaker divine insight that can speak directly to people that I don't know, have never met, maybe won't meet at all. And yet the spirit gives me the insight that knows they need (laughs) to then speak through me in a way that then strengthens their faith that causes them to feel known by God, to feel like, wow, God saw me. I'm getting so emotional because that's really beautiful to think about people having their faith strengthened because we're being mindful of the Holy Spirit and listening to that guidance and that people can then feel like, God cares about me. God is close to me and God wants to minister to me and God is ministering to me. That's so beautiful. And that's such a powerful ministry and gift of the Holy Spirit to cause us to be known by God and to be connected to one another through that. Yeah, it really is incredible. And there's been plenty of moments where I've had someone say literally like, oh, did they tell you about that conversation? that we had like, oh, did my campus minister tell you about that before you came to our campus or something? And it's always kind of funny for me because I'm like, no, I don't have that much time to like build a talk around like certain individuals. But, um, but it's also why there's such a burden on, uh, like scripture is so clear that there's a heavy weight on anyone who preaches or teaches because, if you misuse that responsibility and you do actually know something ahead of time and you're like passive aggressively speaking it from the stage, like, or if you've experienced a leader who has done that, I think to really trust that the Lord does take those things seriously and holds those things into account when someone is basically like impersonating the Holy spirit, that's a very serious thing to the Lord. Another function that's related again, it's all intertwined is that Part of the spirit's role is ministry and comfort is speaking truth and healing to our hearts and minds. That's part of why Jesus calls the Holy spirit, the comforter. And that is such a clear, I think thing that we experience that when we are feeling anxious, especially if we are experiencing any kind of spiritual warfare where lies from the enemy are sneaking into our minds of, Oh, you're worthless this work is stupid. You're never going to be loved. You're never going to amount to anything, you know, things that are just really dark and the voice of the accuser, that that is a huge work of the Holy spirit to defend us than to speak that truth in opposition to the enemy, to really root us in what is true about the nature of God and that we are loved and cared for. And that's, that is comfort. That is again, this, this nurture and comfort of, that's actually not true. This is what is true. And God is with you and things are, are going to be okay. <laughs> um, I think we, we sometimes underestimate, I think that element of the work of the spirit, which is that, that personal ministry of comfort and truth to our hearts and minds. Yeah, that's really good. And I think again, is such a clear, beautiful picture I love the way that the Holy Spirit is an aspect of the Trinity that is described so much through word pictures and throughout scripture there's really clear like tangible expressions of what it looks like for us to 
know the Holy Spirit. And I think, I think that's a gift to us in this kind of more abstract person of the Trinity to have these clear word pictures of what it looks like to invite the Holy Spirit into our lives in a fuller way. Yeah, so true. Right. And then Romans, again, describes the work of the Holy Spirit as intercession for us, continuing to build off these themes of revelation, of insight, of comfort, that the Spirit intercedes for us in prayer, which is so powerful. And this may be a a verse that y'all have heard before because Romans 8 is more prominent in a lot of Christian teaching. So Romans 8, 26 and 27 says, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And again, wherever it is saying he, we it needs to be clear that that's, that's more a function of the English language. That's not the Spirit being designated as masculine. Uh, but that's, again, a, a really powerful picture of... There are times where, especially when we are suffering, when we're struggling and we're trying to pray or when we're in seasons of confusion or even active sin, that we're battling sin and we're having a hard time praying for things that are actually good and healthy for us, that the spirit moves on our behalf and is like, I know what you need. I know what the will of God is in your life. And so however imperfect or partial your prayers are, the spirit receives those prayers reworks them, (laughs) edits them (laughs) on our behalf so that God actually receives our prayers in their, their best form and in the way that is actually going to benefit us the most. So I think that's really interesting and really powerful that the Holy Spirit sees us and sees where we are and what we need and also knows the will of God and essentially makes that connection, bridges that gap between what we understand and what the Spirit knows that God actually wants to do in our lives. And so the spirit essentially edits and redirects our prayers so that they actually are in line with God's will and that God then is moving in our lives in the way that we actually need most fully. Yeah, I love this aspect of the Holy Spirit. And I think so often there's moments where we can say, I I wasn't thinking of that in my own conscious mind. And then the Holy Spirit interrupts our thoughts or um, provokes us in some way to pray. And I think we have the option to be attentive to that or not. And I think there's also ways in which, you know, this is its own episode, but uh, the Holy Spirit leading us into prayer is often a way in which our prayer moves beyond our own conscious. Like, um, I'm, I'm hesitating to use words of consciousness, but I think our own like intentional language and into either like spirit-filled language, or I think even this way of a travailing prayer or just different aspects of prayer that is beyond maybe what you would do before a meal or just open your, the scriptures together or something like that. I think the Holy Spirit often leads us into a prayer that is a more robust expression of prayer as well. Yeah. Yeah. That's so good. Yeah. And so just a couple observations about 
all of that, all of these attributes of the Holy Spirit, these elements of the way that the Holy Spirit moves is not, not always, but often women are most attuned to the life of the Spirit. Of course, there are tons of Spirit-filled men who are really seeking the life of the Spirit, who are connected with it, who are, again, attuned to it. For whatever reason, more often than not, I think that's just more common amongst women. And I would say because a lot of the ways that the Spirit moves are a little bit more intuitive to women because there's some commonalities there, because there are things that the Spirit does that are, again, expressions of femininity, of the ways that women are invited to act and live and move in the world. And so we essentially, I think, often sense a commonality with the Holy Spirit, that there are things about the way the Spirit moves that we understand because it comes naturally to us as well. And so, I'm, again, I'm hesitant to speak in overly broad strokes um, or sweeping statements. And yet this is a pervasive trend or just pattern that I see that women, I think, find it easier to access the life of the Spirit because we relate to it in a unique way. Yeah, I think that's really good. I think one of the obvious ways that Holy Spirit works is by giving gifts in the expressions that are given in Romans and First Corinthians. And so I think an aspect of that is a surrender to receive those gifts. And so I think there's often a way in which women have kind of in some ways been more socialized to a surrender, which is not at all a like gender essentialism statement. It's actually a statement of a disturbing trend of ways that men are socialized. Uh, but I think is a statement of the aspect of surrender that it is required for friendship with Holy Spirit. And so I think in order for us to walk in step with the spirit, as we are told to do, we have to admit that we need to, and also surrender to that. And I think there's ways in which women are in some ways just really socialized more and more to, to do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Right. And in ways that, like you said, in society aren't necessarily for our benefit, but that I think by the redemptive power of God can be for our benefit in our spiritual lives, that ways that might be harmful in society to be um, yeah, surrendered or overly submissive in ways that are like to the denial of ourselves actually can be a real beautiful thing in a healthy spiritual way. And um, that that's, yeah, like the women, again, are more, we're socialized to be connective we're socialized to be collaborative. We're socialized to bring people together. I mean, think about how many families have a central matriarch, that the matriarch is the one who gets everybody together for holidays, who knows what's going on in everybody's lives, <laughs> who is caring for and working behind the scenes to support people and make them feel loved and connected. I mean, that's we do that naturally. And that's because I think we learn it from the Holy Spirit, that that's God's image within us that can play out in really lovely and caring ways in the lives of the people around us. Yeah, I think that's really good. 
I think another point this brings us to is that the ways in which Holy Spirit is active in the church and in God's people is just in stark contrast to patriarchy and the systems and structures of a patriarchal society. And I think the ways in which you've already named of patriarchy despises emotion and a lack of control and mystery in and of itself. And the Holy Spirit is in God's self mysterious. And so I think there's an aspect of that where patriarchy in so many ways thwarts the work of the Holy Spirit. And so we have to be intentional to, for so many reasons, unravel oneself from patriarchal structures and systems, but to also recognize ways in which that has actively thwarted the work of the Holy Spirit, that there's an aspect of patriarchy that hates beauty without function, that beauty for beauty's self is in and of itself, like not appreciated in patriarchy. And part of the Holy Spirit's function in the Godhead is just to bring glory to God's self and to glorify Jesus, to glorify the Trinity. And so there's an aspect of the glory of God that is embodied in the Holy Spirit in ways in which are mysterious. Like some of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, I think we despise because we don't understand them and because we don't always see the function of it. We don't see the fact that words of knowledge are in order to provoke someone of God's knowing of them. And I think there's aspects of that that are just for the beauty of being known. And that may or may not have its own like deep function. I think belief that is rooted in something that is purely cerebral is a function of patriarchy. And so often patriarchy and white supremacy are just hand in hand. It's it's difficult to unravel like which is which in some ways. And so that's obviously an aspect of that. But I think there's so much in saying yes to friendship with the Holy Spirit that is a an understanding that knowledge is fuller than a cerebral understanding of something, that there's a fuller way of knowing someone and um, an experience of God that we have to say is not purely cerebral. And that is at odds with patriarchy, that patriarchy in and of itself is an unhealthy power structure at the expense of another. And the Holy Spirit, part of the Holy Spirit's beauty is the perfect way of understanding power, that there's power that uh, overwhelms in some ways, but it's always in a beautiful way. So we see that in Mary, that it says the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. And we see that in experiences of the Holy Spirit in the world today, that there's a way in which Holy Spirit overpowers and overshadows the human form and human body with the glory of God. And that that is still a, a way in which power is perfectly expressed and it does no harm to another. And I think there's so many ways in which the Holy Spirit is just 
honestly like at odds with patriarchal systems and structures in ways in which it makes sense that we have been in some ways in the American church at odds with the Holy Spirit and in in some places like purposefully thwarting the work of the Spirit. Yeah, I think those are such important insights. And as we keep talking, we're going to keep, I think, showing how the way that we react to the Holy Spirit, we meaning specifically the church in the West in particular, but yeah, the, the modern American church for the most part, that we react to the Holy Spirit in ways that show us we perceive feminine attributes in it because we treat it like a woman, <laughs> because we suppress it like a woman. <laughs> um, and it's so strange. And we, if we don't stop to really pay attention to those dynamics, again, we just like don't even notice it at all. We don't talk about it at all. But we react to the Holy Spirit in ways that really reflect patriarchy, that, that reflect systems of oppression, of dismissal, of suppression. I love how you talk about that because the Spirit is often more intuitive and unpredictable that's disconcerting for systems of patriarchy and white supremacy and so then it makes sense that they would want to sideline and suppress the holy spirit and with the high priority on logic as the truest form of knowledge or expression or understanding that logic is the only true way to look at the world then the holy spirit doesn't really fit that it's not that the spirit is illogical, don't so don't hear us saying that. It's again that it's it's a little bit more unpredictable and a little more mysterious that you can't just completely explain it all the time. It doesn't have formulaic rules attached to it. And so that's of course going to be a challenge to systems that thrive on rules and logic and formulas and that anyone who doesn't fit into that whether it's women or cultures that are more expressive and intuitive that those those people are inevitably going to be sidelined and that's how we treat the holy spirit too that we lump the spirit in with the ways that women and people of color historically have expressed themselves and so then we just push it to the side yeah i think again it can't really be overstated how much we have relegated the work of the Holy Spirit to certain cultures or kind of, and, and almost look down on it. And I think, like you said, the Holy Spirit is mysterious and also orderly. Like God is bringing order by hovering in God's spirit. And so we see that in the creation narratives that God's spirit is bringing order to chaos and so there's an orderly way in which holy spirit works and it's also a way that is outside of our understanding and comprehension at times and we have to in some ways surrender our desires and insistence upon that in order to say yes to the holy spirit i think that's such a crucial point you just made that mystery and chaos are not the same because it, made me, it immediately made me think of somebody I do not respect, Jordan Peterson, who is, I think, just toxic and perpetuates tox toxic masculinity. But he, I think, hates women. Um, but he always uh, portrays women as agents of chaos, that women are chaotic, that women are synonymous with chaos. 
And I just think that's such a misnomer and a mischaracterization of mystery and a lack of formula. Again, it doesn't mean that it's without reason. It doesn't mean that it's without intention. It just means that you can't control it. That's really all that that means. And so it's so much easier to label that as chaotic rather than uncontrollable. And again, those two things are not the same. Chaos has no purpose. Chaos has no reason. Chaos has no pattern, has no intention. That is not the work of the spirit. And that's not who women are either. Um, Just because that we're perhaps hard to control, which we're meant to be (laughs) hard to control. In fact, the spirit is not meant to be controlled, nor are women or people meant to be controlled by one another. That that's actually a very good thing and a very godly thing that we are not meant to be under the power and control of one another. And but yeah, yeah, it makes people uncomfortable because they want to be able to control it, especially men, especially men in power. And so then it gets labeled and we get labeled as chaotic rather than just having our own power and an agency and maybe intentions that you don't understand or yeah, attributes that you don't understand. Yeah. In fact, like where the Holy spirit was thriving in the early church, Paul saying, Hey, I know you guys are like really welcoming to the Holy spirit, but make sure that you do it in order. Cause if someone comes in and it just looks like a bunch of chaos, that actually won't be a very good witness to how good and kind the Lord really is. And so definitely, you know, be very free but do it in a way that expresses the order of God and gives them some instructions around that, which the Western church is like the opposite of that. We believe in order at the expense of the Holy spirit. And um, so I think this picture of a church where they are so excited and so zealous for the gifts of the Holy spirit that Paul actually has to say, Hey, you don't all need to prophesy on the same day. You're probably repeating each other a little bit because the Holy Spirit's speaking to all of you. So just a few of you can do that on one day. And then the next week, someone else can have a, a turn that the Holy Spirit's speaking to. And for that to be actually an expression of the order of God. Yeah. Yeah, that's so good. That's so good. So continuing in this this in this vein of how has the church and probably patriarchy <laughs> reacted to the Holy Spirit and perceived it is like we were saying, I think it's telling that it's the most ignored member of the Trinity. That really tells us something about how we intuitively perceive it if we are therefore pushing it to the side, neglecting it, ignoring it. Um, it almost, again, I hesitate to speak in overly sweeping statements, but often, in general, in white complementarian settings, at least, I can't speak for complementarian settings of other cultures, so I'm not going to lump them into the same category, um, but almost in, completely in white complementarian settings, they are also cessationists. They also are not looking for the life of the spirit, for the movement of the spirit, for the gifts of the spirit. So that's telling. That tells us something that if you are in a tradition that thinks only men can lead, that you're not also seeking the participation of the Holy Spirit. That tells us something. 
Yeah. I would say just even anecdotally, my own experience of cessationist uh, complementarian men has been very unkind and without the fruit of the Holy Spirit as well. And so I think even that way of I've often been critiqued by complementarian cessationist men for a theology that is robust in the Holy Spirit. And that has been what they will latch on to when what they really mean is, I don't think you should be teaching me at all. And so I've always found that to be interesting that often that will be the linchpin that uh, cessationist complementarian men will often grab onto. And that's, that's a huge thing to say that's an issue that one would take with a teaching. I even was listening to a, uh, just in the context of the relegation of the Holy Spirit, I was listening to an interview between two Trinitarian scholars, basically. And one had written a book called The Birth of the Trinity. And they had, I think they said four pages about the Holy Spirit. And so the the other scholar was kind of throwing some kind shade at them and they were receiving it. They were like, you're right. That is a fault. But I just don't understand how one could write a book on the Trinity and not include at least a third of it around the Holy Spirit. But again, somehow we have decided that's okay and actually expected like that so many people would say yes to that and I think even for us to believe that that is what is scholarly and I think that comes down even to if you look at where the church is most thriving it's in the global south and that is always a Pentecostal expression of the church and so places where the Holy Spirit is welcome and active the church is thriving so that should be a little bit of a green flag for all of us but I think also as the Western church, we often look at the global South almost with pity or with a a real like paternalism and feel this sense of, oh, like when they have economic growth, then we'll feel like better about them or something. And to say, actually, they're doing just fine and the church is thriving and we should learn from those cultures rather than seeing it from a really paternalistic perspective. And I think for us to pay attention to the ways in which the Western church talks about some of those growing movements and to see the contempt and the lack of respect for the way in which God is moving in those places, because it actually says a lot about what we think about the person of the Holy Spirit exactly that when we react to the holy spirit with patriarchy and white supremacy (laughs) that means we equate it with things that we're actively trying to suppress which are women and people of color and so again like we're sort of telling on ourselves in the west if if that's how we're going about it and there's probably some element where because the west is in general more affluent and that's not true for every person 
but industrialized, you know, and so there is a different level of wealth and comfort in in the West. That then I think we feel less helpless. We feel less, we feel our need less, even though we still have it the same amount. And so then we feel more self-reliant, essentially. And I think that makes it easier to then make our faith more rational and formulaic rather than poverty is unpredictable or oppression. Living under oppression is unpredictable. And so when you're already in a state of life where you don't, things don't just add up of, if I do this, then I will get this. That's not a guarantee when you're being oppressed. Actually, you could work really hard and get nothing for it. But I think that makes you more willing to rely on the work of God, that you recognize, gosh, I, by myself, cannot be successful, cannot achieve everything I need. I need the help of God. And I'm going to invite the power of God to move on my behalf. It's sad that that is forced on people by systems of oppression and inequality. And yet the, the God can move and meet people in ways that are really lovely and in ways that we need in the West, too. We just don't think that we do because we live in very relative luxury. And so I think that's part of it as well, that when we think that we're self-sufficient, then we're not relying on a mysterious power of God because we think we can. I, my life is predictable. I have ordered it myself. And I will continue to be in power myself. And therefore, I'm not interested in participating in an unpredictable and beautiful power of God. That's so good. So often we hear people say something like they might actually believe, even a cessationist, I think, could believe that God heals someone in a developing nation. And that's fascinating to me, but also says so much about what we believe about ourselves. And so we'll say, we'll hear people say things like, do you think that God just works in that way in those countries because they don't have access to healthcare? As if it's God's preference that we would rely on our own means rather than saying, it's possible that we have not because we ask not and because we have not contended for those things in the same way that a person who is truly desperate from a really clear perspective but for us to have that same hunger and desire for the lord to move in those ways rather than saying oh i think that's what god does for poor people but for us he sends us to the doctor like that's such a silly perspective when we put it like that. And yet so many people, I've heard so many people say something like that, which is really our own permission for ourselves to not surrender to the Lord and to not say, I actually want to develop a friendship with Holy Spirit that is beyond something that I can control and manipulate for my own purposes and my own um, desires. And so for us to actually say yes to the Holy Spirit with full freedom for the Holy Spirit to work in whatever way Holy Spirit wants to, I think is a a challenging thing for us. And so we will create our own permission slips of whatever logic we can think of uh, to, to make a way for ourselves to allow our manipulation of the Lord. Yeah, that's so good. And I think that gets into some caution on 
the other side of the coin that there can be two sides of the same coin in our relationship with the Holy Spirit. That one, we can neglect and suppress the Holy Spirit. On the other side, we can also try to unnaturally control and harness the Holy Spirit and manipulate the Holy Spirit. And so it's important to note that there can be temptations across the spectrum. And that I wrestled with that myself as I was first in when I it was in my early years of ministry, as I was first engaging more in the life of the spirit. And you see the incredible power that the spirit of God has. And when you start to experience it, there is a temptation of, all right, how do I wield this now? How do I try to make it a formula so that I can summon the power of the spirit whenever I want? And then if, if I pray a certain way, if I, you know, do certain things beforehand, if I read enough scripture and fast beforehand, then I will cause the spirit to move in the way that I desire. And so there is real warning there on the other side too, that because it is so powerful and beautiful and can bear such fruit, there still needs to be a real caution of respect and humility in our work of this, our connection with the spirit. And that, so that for me at least was a real process of understanding there are things that I, I can do to make myself open, to be in, to be prayerful, to be discerning, to be open, to be making myself available. And sometimes the spirit moves and sometimes it doesn't. And that can't be something that then I think God doesn't love me or I did something wrong. That can be an unfortunate harm that can come sometimes in very charismatic settings where people can have their faith shaken because if it became a formula and somehow then it didn't, the spirit didn't move, then you think, well, I'm the problem. I must be the weak spot in the formula. And so maybe I'm a bad person or again, maybe God doesn't love me or whatever, or maybe God's not real, you know, like there can be real danger there. Uh, and so it is, again, important that we're letting the spirit be what it is, be all powerful, <laughs> be more powerful than us, <laughs> and that we're not going the other way of yet again, we're kind of telling on ourselves if we think that the spirit can either be suppressed or controlled. That's the way that we treat women. We think women can either be suppressed or controlled. And so we're not trying to do that to each other. And we're not trying to do that to the spirit of God. We're, we need to let the spirit of God be fully autonomous, fully powerful, fully a blessing and something that is fully beyond our comprehension or, or manipulation. I think that's a good word of caution because it, it can be so true that in places where we celebrate the work of the Holy Spirit, that we begin to kind of try to bottle it or become formulaic about it. And I think honestly, some of that comes down to one of the other trends that we see in the, the church, not just like the Western church for this generation, but across history is that we have not always clearly seen Holy Spirit as a part of the Trinity eternity past, eternity future. And so because of that, we don't always understand the way in which Holy Spirit has worked throughout all of time. And I think the more that we see that, the more we see there's not a formula. The more we are open to the work of identifying Holy Spirit in the Old Testament and seeing, oh, the very first time that the Holy Spirit comes upon someone is to create 
artistic creative works in the tabernacle that is outside of our current formulas of what holy spirit would do so the very first time the holy spirit fills someone is for creative work and that's outside of our current formulas but if we are willing to see the eternal work of the holy spirit i think we will see the ways in which we it's outside of a formulaic understanding of who god is yeah. Yeah. That's so good. Yeah. So we hope that you're gathering from this, that the ways that we see the spirit described and moved through scripture are so beautiful and powerful. And in many ways, not completely, again, we're not saying the Holy spirit is a woman, but in many ways there is great femininity and feminine expression in the person of the Holy spirit. And that therefore the way, also the way that we have reacted to it to try to suppress or control it also shows us that there's something inside us as humans that perceives the femininity <laughs> of the Holy Spirit. And therefore we're, we act like it's a woman. We treat it like it is a feminine force because we're scared of it <laughs> and we're freaked out by it. Um, and so, yeah. Within that, though, that's I think we hope this is an important invitation for women that it is OK and appropriate for us to see ourselves reflected in the person of the Holy Spirit. We have a home in the Trinity. We have a role model and a source. We come from somewhere. We are not this random add on in the creation that has nothing to do with God's image. We are not outsiders in a masculine Trinity. And I felt that way for a long time. I felt like I was an outsider without a source that when I, when I was told that the whole, that the Trinity is all male, where does that leave us? It, it leaves us bereft. It leaves us adrift. And so that's what we're trying to correct is a really false and unhealthy, unbiblical depiction of the Trinity as completely masculine that leaves no place for women to find ourselves within the person of God. Uh, and so we do have a place within the whole and then all of the Trinity in three persons, each of each of the persons has feminine attributes. So we're also not limiting it only to the Holy Spirit that God describes God's self as feminine attributes. We have a whole episode about that <laughs> called, are you my mother? Jesus uses at times feminine language about his love for the church and his desire for the church. And then again, we see these feminine expressions within the Holy Spirit. So the whole Trinity contains feminine elements. And we also do see that strongly expressed within the Holy Spirit. And so we just want to invite the women in our midst and men to also understand that, again, we have a place to identify. We come from somewhere. We're, on, we're here on purpose. And we intentionally reflect a huge part of who God is within the Trinity. Yeah, I think that's such a good invitation for us to to see truly the God who is beyond gender, who is bigger than what we have ways to express, and yet who makes women and men in God's image. And so we get to see aspects of ourselves, both women and men, reflected in the person of God and in all of the expressions of the Trinity and to see that in all of the glorious aspects of that, the ways that Jesus 
refers to these word pictures in storytelling and all of these different aspects. And so I hope that that has been an invitation today for each person, that there's an invitation into a deeper intimacy with Holy Spirit, that there's a a way in which you have permission and opportunity to dig into what what do I want out of my relationship with God? Do I want a a truly triune experience of who the Lord is? And is there more than what I have experienced? And I hope that that's an invitation to really plumb the depths of who God is. And I think I want to leave with this benediction that Paul gives in second Corinthians that the amazing grace of the master Jesus Christ, the extravagant love of God, the intimate friendship of the Holy spirit be with all of you. And I hope that that's the invitation that you've heard today, that this invitation to experience the fullness of the triune Godhead. So thanks again for joining us today. We would love to hear how these episodes on the Trinity have ministered to you. You can contact us on Facebook and Instagram at Excavate Podcast. Our merch link is in the show notes along with a link to our Patreon community and we'd love to connect with you more there. Thanks for joining us and digging in with us today.